Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon here with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric. Good morning, Rachel. Hi. How are you? How was your weekend? I'm well. It was, it was a long, tough weekend, a lot of work. I was dragging this morning, and then your laughter brought me up like it oh, always does. I love that. Like, I love doing the show with you, and your laughter just gives me confidence and the energy, and I just, I appreciate it. It was good. How about yours? Awesome. Well, I finished my defensive driving. Nice. uh, For any uh, listeners who didn't (laughs) listen to the last show or shows, Rachel has a uh, problem with her automobile. It goes faster than the government would like it to, and they're trying to re-educate her. I was going the speed that I felt like that roadway should have been, I'm just saying, but uh, yeah. I don't think that's your vote. I mean, you get to vote, but I don't think that's your responsibility uh, but I'm glad you, did you learn anything? I did learn, learn that you can't drive the speed that you would like to drive, even though you feel like the speed limit's too slow. So I did Meaning learn. they told you you should drive the speed that they ask you to drive or less. Yes. I mean, unless you got a lot of ticket money, as they say. <laughs> so you can keep doing it if you got the ticket money, but uh, I'd rather not. I'd rather not. That's an interesting approach. If you're willing to pay the penalty, drive away, huh? Yeah, exactly. I mean, just make sure, I think you have to be under 25 or something because you automatically go to jail if you're going too fast. So that's a lesson. (laughs) You just just crossed that limit, luckily. So you're okay there. (laughs) All right. So let's jump into today's podcast. I am so excited. This is my, probably my favorite organization in all the federal government. Um, We can't play favorites on this show. I'm sorry. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. You get your favorites. So please welcome to the podcast, Richard Grabowski. He's acting program manager for CISA's CDM program. And John McBride, chief of adversary pursuit for CISA's threat hunting subdivision. Welcome, John. Welcome, Richard. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you for having us. It's okay to play favorites. That sounds fine with me. Everyone Rachel, who do you like better, Richard or Jonathan so far? I'll ask you at the end of the show also. I I don't know yet. I don't know. But I I just, everyone we've talked to at CISA, I mean, from from Krebs and Eric and and just all the folks are are wonderful. And and I love the work that you guys are doing. And it's just, it just feels fresh, modern, passionate, you know, all the things. And uh, thank you. Okay. Thank you for that. We're an outcome-driven organization. Richard and Jonathan, Rachel will make a call by the end of the show. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll, Wait for I'll put on my best, my best radio face. Let's see what you got. That's hilarious. Hey, Rachel, before we get started, can I ask Richard and Jonathan uh, what they, how they feel about your TikTok obsession and, and the time you're spending and whether that's a good, safe activity or not? I, I don't get the TikTok. I mean, I'm not that old, but I feel I like either. social media has kind of just ran, ran laps around me at this point. TikTok, <laughs> Instagram. I'm still like in the email and like 
you know, chat functions right now. So I, I don't, I don't get it, you know, so I'm probably the wrong person to ask. You're, you're not Rachel, Rachel's favorite at this point, Rachel. John, what do you think? She's on it on, all the time from what I hear. Look at, what do you look at, Rachel? Dog videos? It's dog, but the, the algorithm, it figures out how much I love animals. And so it's like every, you know, dog and kitten and cats on Roombas and all the things. Like, I love it. It's John? A, like a serotonin uh, boost, right? That kind of. So, uh, so I'm not going to lie. I, I get the dog videos, I get motorcycle videos, and I get the woodworking. Right. So uh, it's really easy to end up in a downward spiral two hours later, and I'm looking at dovetail joints uh, for some new cabinet that is going to be on a list that I will never get accomplished. Yeah, Richard, you and I are both out on that. Who's my favorite rating score here? I see that. Okay, Rachel, yeah. let's start the show because... <laughs> Richard and I have nothing to comment. We have, we have nothing. Well, I, I kind of have a combo first question. So um, I, I'd like to talk, you know, about, you know, the Biden administration, their executive order on cybersecurity uh, and steps that CISA has taken to improve our nation's cybersecurity, you know, now that Biden's kind of doubled down on it. But part two of that is I read this really interesting article in NextGov saying that basically government is ahead of private industry in zero trust implementation and adoption, which I was like, what? That's awesome. And I, I wonder, is there a corollary there between the two? That's actually interesting you brought that up because I, um, on, the, on the theme about the government being ahead of private industry, I had a conversation with a vendor who will rename nameless because uh, we'll keep it that Thank way. You. But there was a certain supply chain issue, right? And we were really hammering them on as, hey, look, this this code that you all are using is is end of life, end of support. And it's been that way for a while. Like, why haven't you addressed it? And they had said something very similar. It's like, well, the government's ahead of the curve. And I was just like gobsmacked. Like the government ahead of the curve of private industry here. And I think to the credit of our leadership and CISA, They've really talking about speed limits. Have really put the the pedal to the metal on cyber issues to the extent that we are now really pushing the envelope on a lot of different things. Even if you look at like policies and things that CIS has been doing with like binding operational directives, they're setting standards right now that don't exist, irrespective of federal or private. And that's a very encouraging sign, I think, for for people that look to CISA for leadership in the cyberspace. I agree. I mean, from my perspective, when I talk to people in the industry or who want to get into the industry. I think DC for at least for the US DC is the hub of cybersecurity. Definitely. You know it, it's 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 where things come together. Now you may have people at Energy Labs or NASA spread all across the planet but or at least the country, but DC is where cybersecurity is at. No, we're not, we're not as far as we want to be, right? There's a lot of work to be done, yeah. but I would fully agree with that. And I think, I think you see that in the hiring of government employees, former government employees in the banks and, and industry across mm. the, the land. John, any comments? Yeah. So when it comes to the, the cyber landscape and kind of leading the charge, I, I too, I, I'm a little remiss to hear uh, that you know the federal government would be ahead of private, but we are trying to push the envelope. Uh, at CISA, we're in the middle of a paradigm shift with the way we operate, the authorities that we've been granted by Congress and so forth. There, there's a lot on the rise of us trying to drive innovation as well as help uh, mold the, the private sector when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, we've got to kind of get away from being more reactionary and get left of boom. 
So any way that we can do that by either influencing policy, influencing, influencing uh, technology capability, uh, this is the hub because it's where everybody comes. Either they're lobbying for Congress to provide funding for certain capabilities, or we're trying to ensure that we have the necessary accesses uh, and authorities to carry out the mission. So I, I can see it, but it, I definitely am going to be hesitant to say that, you know, we are ahead of the curve. Well, it doesn't mean we're playing in the major leagues right now, necessarily, right? I mean, we, we, there's there's a lot of work to do. The adversaries are growing every day. I mean, it's it's... it's it's a, in, I would say, almost undefendable space. I would, actually, I would say that. But I do think there, we need leadership in the space, and we are seeing that from the government. Yeah, and on, on the leadership front, we're definitely stepping up. Uh, we know what we need to do uh, and to carry it out. Again, uh, CISA is at the forefront of trying to ensure that we, we close at least the hiring gap across the federal government. Right. We've got our new, um, I would say, the hiring uh, program, the CTMS or Cyber Talent Management System. That's one of the ways that CIS is trying to work to ensure that we can close the gap uh, somewhat between the federal uh, hiring space and private sector. CTMS is going to allow us to bring in talent, you know, temporarily as a government employee, but at the pay scales closer to what the private market is uh is able to offer. So with that, we can ensure that we can bring in the brightest minds across not only the technical landscape, but even the managerial landscape throughout all of the government and ensure that we can drive the innovation and get federal space to where we are in front of the private sector in driving the initiatives, driving technologies. So it, there's a lot on the forefront. Uh, the program is really new. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I had heard uh, Director Easterly talk about it during DEF CON. You know, this was a process that has been ongoing for the last eight years of trying to get this wow. program up and running. And it's wow. only been implemented within the last year. I know we're hiring right. against it now. Uh, so sky's the limit. We'll, we'll right. see where it takes us. When I, I think when people leave government, this is important also, they they leave government to private industry. They have an enterprise view. They understand the government's position. They have education and training they may not get in the commercial yeah. world as quickly. So you're almost infusing that mindset and some of those capabilities out, even with turnover. So the better job that, quite frankly, the government does, I think the better protected, in this case, American industry will be too. Now, that's a long-term plan. Yeah, Long-term play there. There's a lot of exposure that comes in working in the federal landscape uh, and specifically to CISA. Not only are we focused at the federal level, but we're also focused at the state, local tribes, territories, critical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So there's a wide swath of what we get to influence as well as what we interact with on a daily basis. Uh, from the services that we put into place, like for Richard across the CDM uh, program, uh, continuous diagnostics and mitigation. Uh, but then also in my area in threat hunting, you know, uh, my boss, uh, he, he always likes to talk about uh, that on one given day, we could be working in a nuclear uh, plant uh, dealing with an incident response while also interrogating the local uh, coffee shop because it's feeding and supplying into 
uh, the personnel that are working uh, at the nuclear plant, right? There's so many different avenues when it comes to uh, cyber threats that it, it takes a look at the holistic chain of what we're dealing with that you're just not going to get when you're in the private sector. Private sector, uh, you're typically focused on your given organization, your given uh, mission set, technologies that you're dealing with, etc. Whereas the federal government, we have to take everything in at that mile wide inch deep to ensure that we can provide the most secure cyberspace possible to ensure that the interests of the, the U.S. is taken into account. I think what John said also is very important there because I think that's why CISA exists, right? America's cyber in- agency, that central point that can actually see the behaviors, the landscape across all of government. Because we, what we do here is a very much partnership model. We partner with industry, we partner with agencies, and that's to help with this broader enterprise efficacy, right? Um, right. You're not going to expect one agency to know or be able to execute very specific things that's in another agency's, you know, because we have healthcare, we have energy, we have um, social services, we have all these different types of things that these very specific agencies deal with. And they know at a very parochial level kind of what they need to do around their mission. But you need someone that really can kind of break down the silos and do that whole government perspective, right? That's honestly what we've been doing on the program for quite a while. And John has eloquently stated, you know, there's a there's a need there to make sure that there's that primacy over all of government because the adversary doesn't respect, okay, well, that's that's a healthcare boundary, so we're not going to go into this other boundary. They're, they're going as fast as they can across the silos, and someone needs to stay, you know, kind of you know, keep, keep pace with them. Absolutely. I, I can't even imagine what you guys must see day to day. I'll just put it like that. <laughs> like, it must be fascinating. It's like my sock drawer, Rachel, but it has consequence. <laughs> <laughs> it truly is a civil service at its best. You know, it is actually a, it's a calling. And my sock drawer at least has clean socks. They they just get the dirty. I mean, it is. It's got to be a mess. Yeah. yeah. So I, I I love the partnership piece of it because um you know like shields up and I mean it's, I feel like you guys are like broader partners to you know kind of you know organizations you know large and small right you you know helping hand and but you know the partnership with other agencies and private industry. In particular, though, um, and and on the threat hunting, right? I think have have we figured out the information sharing aspects on how to you know kind of cross pollinate details that we're getting and or you know I, I I know some folks when they are hit by a breach that sometimes they're reluctant to want to say anything because you know if it's a ransomware related thing they may or may not want to pay and there may or may not be a penalty um, you know but but information sharing seems to be a really hot topic still so. Uh, as an IT organization, uh, to some degree, right? It's in the title, cyber. Communication is always one of the biggest issues that anyone in IT has. When it comes to collaboration, though, CISA is um, advancing every single day. I'm not going to say it's a perfect situation. Uh, there's, We could always be quicker on the draw to ensure that we get information out. But CISA, through the various arms that we have... Uh, we try to ensure that we do collaborate, not only across the federal landscape, but with our vendors, with the private sector, with our states, local tribes, and territories. Uh, we put out our uh, information directives uh, to notify. Uh, we work with our mission partners, both in the intelligence community as well as our international partners. So uh, the Brits, the uh, Australians, the Canadians, etc. 
uh, in working over incidents as well as uh, indicators of compromise as they come out. Uh, we know in the past, right, we've already talked solar winds a little bit. Uh, the most recent we had was Log4j. With Log4j, collaboration was one of the biggest proponents to ensure that we could minimize the impact of such a vulnerability uh, across all of the landscape. So uh, we're, we're working on various initiatives. Uh, there's one that we want to ensure that we can, I would say, make more of a cohesive an analyst environment uh, to where not only within CISA and our mission partners, but all the way down to the agencies, departments, and organizations that we support, that we can have analyst-to-analyst -analyst collaboration. So having a central location where all of the information flows into, uh, the analysts can go in and they can do the research, they can obtain the anonymized uh, incident reports and so forth that we've gone out and done our threat hunting on or incident response activities, they can pull that information in and utilize it for their own consumption. The other aspect is CISA also puts out, uh, I'll say, informational reports, right? CISA is not an intelligence agency, so we're not in the business of producing intelligence reports. Uh, but from those information reports, we can disclose out the information that we have gained and synthesized uh, across all of the telemetry that CISA has access to at the federal level. The, um, the other part, too, is I don't know if you all were tracking this, but a couple of years ago, the uh, Cyber Solarian Commission, I think in March yeah. of 2020, had made this call, right? We need, we need an ability to communicate, coordinate faster than we ever have before because of how pernicious the adversary is. So there is efforts in CISA. You see it through our, our, our sister organization, the JCDC, the Joint Collaborative um, uh, Subdivision over there, as well as looking at developing like collaboration environments that go faster than email, phone calls, and meetings, right? Because that's at the speed of which we need to coordinate, especially when we're talking about so many different partners, right? There's, a, there's always a higher probability of mi things being misconstrued, miscommunicated, and this is a very technical domain that we're talking about. So mm -hmm. that need to have that kind of real-time, actionable coordination is is ever so critical mm -hmm. uh, in to be more effective and really create you know, force multipliers, if you will, of the staff that we have across the federal government, not just at CISA, because CISA can't do it all itself. Right. We need everyone right. to be able to kind of pony up some resources and be more effective. So better communications, better collaboration, hopefully will meet that, meet that requirement. So, so pivoting, I guess this is maybe more for you, Richard, on the, on the executive order and the, and the evolution of the CDM program. Early days, 2012, I don't, I don't even know, to be honest with you, to 16, 18, somewhere in that window probably, you kind of had four areas of focus, right? It was, it was who's on the network, what's on the network, what's happening on the network, and then how are we protecting data? And, and recently I saw that the language seems to have evolved. And I, I want to say this is post-executive order. I think it was 14028 is the, is the executive order, May 21 from... President Biden, but you, you almost align it with more commercially available terms, asset management for what, who, what is on the network, identity and access management, IDAM, ICAM for who's on the network, network security management for, you know, what's happening, and then data protection is data, you know, how are you protecting data? I'm assuming that was a conscious effort to better align. Has, has a lot changed, though, over the 10 years in your thinking? 
I'm thinking how crazy that question is by just throwing out 10 that, years that of is, yeah, Can anything change? That. It's ridiculous, but, but go on. Yeah. So, so one of the things from a naming perspective to your point is that when we went to those more shorter categories of, of marketing, we call them capability areas, right? Asset management, IDAM, NSM, and DPM or data protection yeah. networks here. Like, Yes. I mean, that that is a much more easier hook into where industry is going. And certainly, if you look at things like the zero trust pillars, you might see that there's some organic alignment there, right? right. Looking at data, securing data, identity and credentials, obviously, and asset management devices. I mean, those are natural touch points. Um, I mean, uh, to be kind of a little tongue in cheek, yeah, everything changes all the time, every time. And, and certainly, what we're trying to do is position the program as a very large acquisition program to be able to keep pace with industry trends, Right. Um, and so those hierarchical archetypes of categories of capabilities allow us some flexibility to determine what is the current state of the art of things that fall within those higher level categories and then pivot our technical resources and our initiatives to main pace, you know, maintain pace with where industry is going. So, for okay. example, with EDR, you know, we, we ha- generally have the uh, network security management capability area. And that's where you would have found a lot of our incident detection response. Thus, us that flexibility to pivot into EDR quite quite easily, quite quickly, and move move to action. Um, and so this is a much more of a, of a framework of determining what's important to CDM and thus the government in cyber and making sure that we are resourced and have the ability to do it um, so that you know we don't have to deal with a lot of overhead or, or um, process uh, that overly constrains what the program can do. So the, the EO comes out. Obviously, you knew something was coming out in the areas because I know – I know Sis had a lot of, of uh, advisement there. Um, any surprises for you? Any major shifts? Anything you were like, whoa, I didn't think they'd be that aggressive. Or I thought they'd pay, play, pay a little more attention over here. As it relates to the CDM program. And then, John, I'll come to you from a threat hunting perspective. Um, not necessarily. We did hear word early about, and I can actually spend some time on this, is the, the language that's in the EO for CDM seems fairly modest at first glance, right? I think it's something to the effect, I forget exactly which section, that, that requires agencies to reestablish new MOAs with the program. Um, for those that don't know how the program operates, that's a pretty big deal for us. We've always had this constraint about how we can share information to CISA through the program, right? We used to just be able to do summary information. I think when you look at what's going on, um, you know, in the field, so to speak, in terms of threats and, and how CISA needs to position itself, not only as kind of a, a compliance auditing type of role or risk advisor, but more of a risk reduction, taking active action, a call to action to actually engage. You need that lower level of telemetry and you have to engage right. collaborative right. partners at a different level than ever before. Right. And so okay. what that EO did is it removed those those constraints from the program. And so now we can leverage the architecture to do things that we've always dreamed about, but just never had the policy to do it, right? right? So now we're talking, okay, we can get hands-on access to tools when we need to. We can get access to host logs when we need to, to near real time, we talked about collaborative environments, determine not only that there's something anomalous going on, but we can actually on a common platform through CDM point to certain areas of data that now our collaborative partners at the agencies can also see and then go after it versus traditionally we've had that challenge that the summary level data can only tell us so much and we can't provide those more detailed type of here's what you need to go suss out and track down immediately. Now we have that capability. So it was a huge game changer for us, even though it might not come off that way from the EO. And then John, I'm assuming from your perspective, 
the agencies are finally starting to get tools. So when there's a problem and your team has to engage, there's at least some capability to help you other than reading yeah. log files. Yeah. So uh, when it comes to the threat hunting aspect uh, of the cyber EO, uh, not much was a surprise to us, uh, as you had stated earlier, right? There was a lot of influence there uh, from the CISA part. Uh, but uh, when it came down to it, it was, you know, if, if you won the lottery and you could get anything that you wanted, right? Money was of no concern. But what is it that we need across the federal government to ensure that we can appropriately get after the adversary and make them have a bad day? Uh, CISA put in its, its input. But from that, it was very surprising to see that just about all of those inputs were accepted. Wow. So right. once the EO dropped, we all kind of stood back, jaw on the floor, and we're like, oh, wow, now we've got a lot of work to do uh, because we really didn't <laughs> you expect. what you asked for. Yeah, we, we really didn't expect to get everything. So, so with that, from a threat hunting perspective, ensuring that from CISA's perspective, uh, that there's two different fields that we have to look at here. Having agencies have the tools that their resident incident responders uh, can leverage uh, to conduct their own incident response and go forth with state-of-the-art tools is excellent. That's the main thing that we're going after. Uh, because typically with the way CISA operates, we actually deploy our own kits. Uh, when we go in response to a given incident that the agencies, you know, they're waving the white flag saying, hey, we need help uh, for a given activity. We deploy our kits, we collect the telemetry, uh, and then we go forth and we do uh, analysis and then assist with providing recommendations, remediation, et cetera. But with the cyber EO, as well as the, the activity that Richard had alluded to, right, having the new uh, CDM uh, MOA put in place, it allows, it allows CISA to leverage the authorities that we've recently gained through the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, Section 1705 has proactive uh, threat hunting measures in place, as well as proactive red teaming uh, activities, which essentially means that CISA has access to the federal landscape and we can go into organizations and no longer do we have to rely on agencies volunteering or requesting our service. If through our federal telemetry, we identify that the adversary is actively within a network and they are exploiting it and it's new novel techniques, we can show up and we can provide those services. We can do the investigation, pull the information back into uh, CISA's analytical environment and then provide more finite, robust uh, information uh, disclosures out to not only the impacted agencies, but the rest of the federal landscape. So, and how do you do that? Do you do that through so, – so the EO enables that and the NDAA enables that, but they've got to have tools that you have access to. Is that enabled through the CDM program yes. to help so, you do that? So uh, with it, uh, Richard can also talk a little bit more on this, but we have two ongoing initiatives right now uh, of which we were, we're bringing these capabilities on. Uh, so as part of the cyber EO activity, uh, Section 7 uh, discussed ensuring that all agencies would deploy uh, EDR uh, technologies within their security stacks. Uh, from that, CISA provided an approach of which 
not only do we get to couple with the EDR uh, deployment across all of the agencies, but also being able to collect post-level telemetry. So no longer are we relying solely on the enterprise boundary telemetry that is collected at the network layer, but now we can start to correlate activity across these tool sets that are being uh, made possible through the CDM program. We can correlate that enterprise boundary activity through the NATed layer that, that takes place within a given agency, and we can go all the way down to the given host. We can go all the way to a specific process to correlate what is taking place within their environment to identify what the adversary is doing. We can then, from that, pivot to make determination, okay, at what point of the cyber kill chain is the adversary? Are they just now getting their initial access and then starting to do internal reconnaissance? Or are they trying to actually uh, further that by, hey, they've identified their target, now they want to exfil the data. We can see all of that activity taking place at the process level, and then we can correlate okay. that with the outgoing network activity. Hey, Rachel, can we do a little role play here? <laughs> sure, sure. Would you be the uh, secretary of an agency? Uh, okay. Okay, I'll be, I'll be John McBride and team. And John, check me here, Richard. Let me know if I'm doing okay. Madam Secretary, this is uh, John Mc, McBride from the uh, CISA's threat hunting subdivision. I think you have a problem. <laughs> I do. That laughter. How could I have a problem with that laughter? Come on, you're not helping the, the show here, Rachel. <laughs> Ma'am, you have a problem. I do? How, how do you know? How did you find it? Or is it because this great telemetry, how long have I had it and what can I do about it? We're actively hunting on your network. We're correlating with data across all of government and other sensors we have. And we need to set up a meeting and help you remediate this immediately. Understand it and remediate it. Fantastic. I got time You feel good about that? Yeah. We can stop role playing now. It's a yeah. short show. But you <laughs> wow. feel good about that? <laughs> so it's, I'll, you know, yeah, go ahead, John. <laughs> I'll say at a very infant level, uh, that is, that's pretty Ish. much how it goes. Uh, I think but that's there awesome. Is definitely, right. There is definitely a lot of coordination that goes into it. I mean, the threat hunting subdivision within CISA, obviously, we're comprised of many different branches and sections that carry out different roles and responsibilities. Uh, we have what we call the mission delivery model, and this includes mission coordinators, issue coordinators, incident managers that are constantly working with the agency CEOs, uh, CIOs, CISOs, etc., as well as the disclosure of certain activity. Uh, so while, yes, the NDA authority allows us to go in essentially on a no-knock basis, that it really goes against how CISA likes to operate, right? We want to ensure that it's a collaboration. We want to ensure that agencies understand what we're there for and why we're there to assist. We don't want to, no offense to law enforcement, right? We don't want to show up and just say, hey, we're CISA, we're here to help. You will let us in. But we want to ensure that the agencies understand there is something to gain. So there's a lot of coordination that goes on to disclose all of the information. We put out reports uh, ahead of time. So when we do identify something at the network layer, and once all of these new capabilities come on the play and we're able to correlate it down to the most minute process uh, on a given endpoint, 
we will disclose all of that information back to the agency. Again, as the federal government, CISA is just a small cog in a very large machine. And to think that CISA has all of the capabilities and all the personnel to respond to every single incident across the landscape uh, is a little naive, right? So we want to have to depend on the agencies, their expertise, the personnel that they have hired to ensure that if they can carry out the mission to do the incident response and remediation, that they do so. Because that ensures that the federal resources within CISA we can focus on those agencies who really need the assistance. So the role play was, you know, in jest, but what you really want to do is avoid that, right? Nobody's calling the secretary of an, of an agency and surprising them. And, and right. Rachel's response to the impromptu role play was probably similar if you just, you uh, know, secretary well, of whatever, well, hey, we've you, got a problem. You You're working with their teams. Yeah. Well, while you think it may be in jest, it is actually very close to reality. Right, Solar Winds is a okay. perfect example of that. CISA is getting all of its information across many different avenues, whether it's closed source reporting in the intelligence community. We've got our vendors, partnerships that we have uh, where they are reaching out directly to CISA prior to even public notifications going out to say, hey, we've got an issue. You need to be made aware of this. We've got this vulnerability or we've got this activity that we've observed what what do we need to do? And it really becomes a collaborative effort of CISA game planning with the vendors, with private sector, and with those that are impacted, right? We have our vulnerability disclosures where we be- then reach out to the agencies to notify them because with SolarWinds, a lot of these agencies really had no idea, no idea. the breadth of their compromise. So it's... And being able to look across that federal telemetry and say, okay, well, based off of the IOCs and knowing how the adversarial techniques are being uh, utilized, we can tell you that, hey, you might be at this phase one of a compromise, whereas another agency might be at phase three because we're already seeing data going back out to command and control elements. The agencies may not have that information up front, so we provide that information out to say, hey, you may have a really big problem here. We need you to go forth and uh, look within your your own enterprise to validate uh, what we're currently seeing at your boundary. Again, because we don't have the insight into the individual security stacks at all of these agencies and proponents, some activity might be mitigated, some may not. So with that, with the new technologies and accesses that we are you know, bringing on board as part of the cyber EO activities, we'll, we'll have a much higher fidelity access to what's happening within the enterprises so that agencies aren't having to go on these wild goose chases. When CISA knocks at the door, we can tell you all the way down to the given host, That's great. this is happening on your network. You've got a problem. Can you handle it yourself or do you need assistance? And the other thing I don't want to make sure that it's not lost on your audience, and I imagine a lot of them are from the federal space as well, is how quickly we can get to that. Com- By the way, we should get you both a Pulitzer for that role play. And that was phenomenal. <laughs> That's good, right? <laughs> that was an aside. Like, I don't think it should be missed how how efficient we can get to that conversation, right? Because in past time, you'd have to have a lot of coordination, a lot of discussions, a lot of meeting, you know, rules of engagement, what's going to be deployed, when, where, timelines. 
who's doing the zoo, short, all of it. All that gets shortcut mm-hmm. by having this kind of, of access and this kind of architecture is now you can get to that level of conversation quicker, which is the whole yeah. goal, right? Like, right. again, machine speed, machine access, machine conversations, less on, on meetings and, and emails and phone calls. And the more of that we can kind of cut through, the more effective the limited staff resources we have can be at finding you know, the things that are blinking at night, you know, that that's really the goal there. So Richard, the, the CDM program then is really responsible for the, the tools and capabilities that provide the access and, and I'm going to reuse the word capability, but the capability to better defend the .gov domain. Yeah. Right. Without, I, without, without CDM, we'd have a much more difficult time connecting agencies is my thesis. The, the reason why I like this particular uh, recording here is because now you can see it from the operator's perspective, which is John, and the provider's perspective, right? Like the two Agreed. subdivisions that you're talking to right now really have different parts of this equation. You know, CDM in, in our subdivision here that we work for is responsible for building out the architecture, building out the capacity to do the things that the operators need, which is in John's vertical. And I think for those that haven't worked on a very large program like CDM, there is a lot that goes into buying things at scale, rolling them out, sustaining them. Um, there's a lot of government process that goes in that, a lot of coordination with industry, a lot of contractual things. And so we handle all that stuff. And we've been doing that for almost a decade now, and we're very good at it. So now you see it applied to a very specific case where we wanted to move quickly on a very very specific capability, set up partnerships, set up contracts, set up the acquisition framework and the, and the procurement processes to get the best in class tools to the entire government, and then to enable the the persistent access process that is brand new to the government and to CISA uh, within a year. I think that's that's pretty impressive, at least mm-hmm. when it comes to these kind of scale of activities. I mean, the government is very large, got a lot of people involved. So we've been very successful thus far. And then I feel like we're recording a commercial here, but I'm good with it because I'm, I'm I'm happy we're moving in the right direction so quickly. There's also the the reporting component that's now coming together where you can report up to the head of government what's happening on America's governmental networks, which, which if every agency did their own thing, everybody I'm assuming would either, they would have some level of reporting capability and they would report in their own ad hoc way and we'd have i don't know how many agencies but dozens of of structures reporting back which would yeah. be chaos to me yeah. we talked about that that machine speed like visibility yeah. and communication like if today you know or or maybe last year if you had to figure out how badly has the government been owned you had to circulate a memo a memo have con- convened meetings phone calls takes a long time. And the way that these agencies, some of them are structured is that they're, they're very siloed and they have their own operations, their own tools, their own process. And it takes a long time to come up with an answer. And by the time you do get an answer, that information, that intel could be OBE, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to get faster. You need to get direct line of sight onto what the adversary is doing. And that's kind of what John was talking about earlier. Um, and, and everybody, including the, you know, the Congress, likes to have that touch point, that lead, lead position person that can answer that quickly without having to go to 15, 20, you know, 30, 50, how many different CIOs and CISOs to get that answer. They need that response immediately. And we're building the framework and the plumbing to make that a reality. I love it. Secretary Lyon is impressed. I told you this is my favorite organization. It's the reason why. Doing great I, I things. see what you're Moving saying. very quickly. Absolutely. So, so- what are the challenges, gentlemen? Like as you as you're trying to roll this out, whole of government, the the most massive 
government organization or organization probably on the free world. Notice how I out, I, I, I rolled out some others there, Rachel. In the free world, like there have to be barriers to implementation, slowdowns that frustrate you. You know, us us vendor community, we just don't want to, you know, you can't trust us. I, I mean, what are the, I don't want to put any ideas in your head, and I don't like that last one, but um, what are the barriers that you really, that keep you up at night? Um, for me, it's, 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 we talked on this a little bit. Resourcing is always a, a key concern, right? And, and there's two different, there's multiple different spins on that, by the way. There's financial resources, right? Cyber is expensive. Cyber tools are very expensive and you can't buy them all. Uh, regardless of what our vendors want to say, like we have to do, we have to pick and choose, right? Um, and EDR tools need to be sustained. We build out this capability, the underlying infrastructure that needs to be sustained in order to make it effective and, and establish permanence to it. Um, so financial resources always keep me up at night, making sure the agencies have and, and, and CISA has what it needs to be effective. Um, but okay. also staff. I mean, the cyber workforce is, one, they're 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 fairly stretched thin as it is, you know, we've been busy the last 12, 18 months, more so than I've ever been so in my career. But two, there's just not as many operators out there, right? So we have to continue to fill the pipelines with skilled individuals and get them interested in government work. And and there's a lot of openings, uh, not only in CISA, but in the cyber federal workforce. So staffing on, on, the, on the human side keeps me up at night as well. Um, and then And then finally, uh, last but not least are these notions of these operational silos, right? Uh, the government has operated in a certain way f when it comes to IT management and operations for the past 20, 30, 40 years in a very specific way that, right. well, I would say it's probably not um, conducive to that, that operator speed we've been talking about in this podcast. We got to figure out ways to, to knock down the silos or coordinate amongst them differently than ever before if we're going to try to keep up with some of these very sophisticated threat actors that are out there. Can we throw that into bureaucracy and silos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that would that would be another term for it, sure. <laughs> I, I, I've been in commercial industry my whole life other than a couple of years out of high school in the Army, and, and I'd say we have the same problems, right? Commercial yeah. industry, I mean, they're, they're not the same scale you're dealing with. We don't have all the constraints maybe the you know but but I, I hear you we can relate yeah 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 the faster we can move especially at, at the speed of cyber as rachel likes likes to say yeah. that'd be good rachel how many i know you track this how many jobs worldwide cybersecurity jobs right now are open at the last data that you've seen uh the last one i saw was about three million yeah but i think it depends also your source of truth on that one it, it seems to vary sometimes by country <laughs> Job security is always great, right? It but is. yeah, yes. it does keep you up just sleepless nights and working to the 11th hour, you know? Yeah, pros and cons, just like everything. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. John, you'd love more threat hunters, right? Yes. Oh, hands down. Uh, if, if we could triple the workforce right now, uh, I would not bat an eye. We had, a, we had a guest on the show way back, probably three years ago, uh, Mike Sorelli from Echelon Front, who wrote a book. And, and he t tells the story about Navy SEALs. He's a, he's a former Navy SEAL. And he talks about, you, you can't put a job wreck out looking for a Navy SEAL because they're trying to make Navy SEALs, right? And right. if you're a Navy SEAL, you don't have to be made into a Navy SEAL. So they're looking at characteristics and everything. Right. And I'm often reminded that threat hunting is, is very similar. You may need to look for certain math skills or you know, inquisitive nature, but they're characteristics that I suspect matter more than looking for all threat hunters because there aren't a lot of them out there. 
Yeah. 100%. I mean, when it comes down to it, we're, we're really trying to gauge aptitude. If the critical thinking skills are there and you have any prowess about you whatsoever when it comes to a computer, we can teach you what we need you to know. Uh, but it's having that inquisitive mind to ensure that you're, you're there to solve the puzzle. Uh, with threat hunting, a lot of what we do is look for the unknown, right? There's enough vendors that are out there that are able to go after the broad-based attacks that are happening by the billions every single second. But what CISA is charged with is finding the advanced persistent threats that are going undetected by all of the millions of dollars that we're investing into these security systems and preventing them from being successful. So with that, we have to ensure that we bring on those people uh, that are inquisitive, that have the aptitude to learn, and they constantly want to learn. Uh, a day at CISA, not a single one of them is the same. Right. Uh, again, I mean, we can go from one day working at a large federal entity to working with a small municipality uh, that is focused on wastewater, right? Uh, the, the swath that we cover, um, there, there is a lot to learn there, and there's a lot that we, have, we still have to learn. So if we could hire uh, as many as we could, if we could influence all the way down to the high school level, right? Having yeah. uh, cyber-related curriculum ingested into uh, the, the public education system, much like how our mission partners do at the college level, we could start to train the workforces at a younger age so that when they get out, they can take on these entry-level jobs and then, you know, in a couple of years, take over my position. I'll move on to greater, right. bigger things. I, sorry, I was just going to say real quick, though, to that point on, you know, in education, John, I, I almost wonder with these kids that are born right with the with the iPad in their hand at like six months old. I, I mean, should we start younger, like elementary school, junior high? Because I have a feeling we're going to start recruiting out of junior high with all these tech CEOs who are like fourteen years old now. I mean, I I'm I'm excited for our future in that regard, but I would love for people to get excited even more uh, earlier in life for for security and, and threat hunting and and all the things that come with this. Hands hands down, if we could invest up front into STEM, there, there's kids that are in their middle school age who could probably out-program me any day of the week because from the time they yeah. could put a, a tablet in their hand, they've been working on these programs. They've been dealing in robotics and other things. I grew up on the Atari. It was a yes, joystick, <laughs> right? So these kids yeah. are far oh, more advanced yeah. than we were. Uh, yeah, I had Pong. So, that was yeah. my first video game. <laughs> So, yeah, Rachel, I mean, you weren't even we... born yet. <laughs> well, to John's point, I think also, you know, I have an, uh, an engineering background by education, and I think there's this kind of undercurrent of intimidation when it comes to STEM. You can make it accessible, and you can make it as, as technically difficult as you want to. You, you know, I think the, there's an educational you know, change here that we have to look at is don't be intimidated by cyber. Don't be intimidated by, by tech. Um, it is can be very accessible. I mean, I have a, a five and a half year old at home, and to to your point, like iPad already functional, knows how to access the settings, drop Wi-Fi connection, like things that I didn't get to till I was in my twenties. So, like 
yeah, I think that the next generation will be well prepared. Just don't be intimidated by it. And if there's a plug here, I think for, and John can correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea of being a threat hunter is almost like a digital detective of sort, right? You get to find interesting things, find, find the story, find the thread. It just, it becomes a very rewarding type of experience, you know? And so if there are people that are, that have that kind of acumen, that have that kind of interest, I would say, don't be intimidated, get your hands dirty. And the other thing too, is that we live in a a great age of information, right? You can access a lot of stuff that is free. Uh, We have vendors that have free training and it is, it is good stuff, Uh, stuff that you would have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for you. It's at, it's there, it's on YouTube or it's on various knowledge-based articles that are published. And so there is enough information out there that if you want to learn cyber, you can do so. And all you need is a working computer, internet, and time. Yeah. And, and to that, <clears throat> the, the plug comes back to the CTMS, right? With that new process, uh, it actually tests your technical aptitude to perform the job. So no longer are we really trying to align to what the federal uh, GS civilian scale was, which right. is, hey, you had to have a college degree. You had to have all of these certs in order to do the job. By using all of the open source information that is out there, you can become as technically proficient as people who hold 15 different certs. They've got the alphabet suit behind their name. But if you can perform the job, you can get hired at CISA. So if you have the characteristics and ability, you you show the characteristics and ability. 100%. Yeah. I love that. John, I mean, just a real quick plug for InfoSec Twitter. But I mean, what you're talking about is, is hitting on a lot of the frustrations, I think, that I'm seeing on, you know, with the folks wanting to get into cyber and they're, you know, like, I don't have the, all the, the alphabet soup, you know, but I can do all these things. I or or I'm perfectly aligned with what you're looking for, but you say I'm not, you know, I don't have enough experience, but I got 15 years experience. And it sounds like there's a huge door open with CISA and people just need to know that it's there and they could walk through it tomorrow if they, they got the skills and the aptitude. That's great. 100%. Rachel, I want to stop for a second, though. This is not new to us, right? We've heard guest after guest say the same thing, and it's also not tied to CISA. I mean, CISA's hiring. It's awesome to hear what you gentlemen are looking for, but the whole world seems to be hiring for the same types of characteristics. So for anybody who wants to get into the industry, there are multiple avenues. And I, I love the characteristics, John, you gave us. Critical thinking, problem solving, aptitude to learn. And Richard, I think you'd probably agree those are critically important in yeah. the program. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there – I've never heard of one yet, but there's got to be a marketplace out there somewhere for like a cyber trade school. I mean, you right. don't have to have yeah. a comp sci degree to understand how cyber works, exactly. even though certainly those type of skill sets are Sans, meaningful. SANS may be the closest <laughs> I can think of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? There's like, a lot of stuff on YouTube. There's a lot out there as we've been talking about. But I think in my mind, SANS is the – probably the closest. I hear a lot of a lot of kids coming out of college or in college, they're in, they're in these crazy cyber programming, you know, IT, whatever you want to call it. The degrees are all different, but they're they're going for degrees. Uh, but I I don't know, SANS probably the yeah. best I've heard so far. So so I'll I'll say SANS is great. Uh, for mm-hmm. what it does, you definitely will leave out of a SANS course with that technical proficiency that you're looking for. But again, the big issue you don't is need it is trying to close that gap to ensure that cyber education is available to all at the current price point. And I'm, I'm not bashing SANS by any means. It's a business model that they have, but not everybody can afford exactly. to take that SANS course. 
So being able to leverage all of the open source available information, I, I will say it hands down every day of the week. If you can get on YouTube, you can get on Twitter, then you can learn cyber. There That's are very so many security researchers that are out there who are constantly disclosing the things that they are researching. Yeah. And they will put on full-on YouTube sessions of, hey, this is how I deobfuscated this malware chain to find the payload that was reaching out to this C2 infrastructure hosted in TB2, Timbuktu, right? So being able to close that gap is one of the key things that we have to do. Because, again, your, your financial status, and this is just my own pride, personal plug, your financial status shouldn't dictate the success that you can reach in the future. So the, the education is out there. You just have to be willing to do the research and find it. So again, to Richard's point, right? If, if we could have that more robust availability of that information and then tie it into the current education systems, we can close the gap and we can have everybody from all walks of life across the U.S. that can come in and fill these three million empty positions in cyber. Because again, we're looking for the aptitude, we're looking for the skills and the capability. We'll train you to do whatever you need to do, but you have to have that mindset. Right. And desire. I, I think, I, yeah. I, I don't know a better way to end the show. We're, we're at yeah. the end of our time, but gentlemen, I, I, I'm going to turn it over right to Rachel here, but I can't thank you enough for thank coming you. on the air Absolutely. with us and spreading the word. This is a, a very pleasure. uplifting story. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. Yeah, these are my favorite conversations too, because it's, you know, I, in addition to TikTok, I spend a lot of time on Twitter as well. But uh, And driving school. and. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I, I think to John's earlier point, I mean, I, I love that, you know, it, it, people want to share information. They want to help the next generation come up. They want to give people, you know, kind of some insights and tools on how to succeed in this world. It's kind of like uh, what Tony Sager was saying, you know, it's like it's time to get rid of the wizards, you know, behind the curtain uh, and let's open up the curtain because there's there's plenty of room for everyone here. Um, you know, when we all work together, we all succeed. And I feel like InfoSec Twitter or our community really does embrace that. You know, we we want more right. people. We want everyone to come in uh, because it only makes all of us stronger when we have all the folks around us who who know what they're doing. So I'm I I'm very excited for the future ahead when I think about the next generations coming up and all the great work that's that's going on to enable them. So but what you're not excited about is picking your favorite, which we talked about at the beginning of the show, Rachel. That's a tough the one. Can I call a tie? On. Can I call a tie? I mean, of course they're, not. They're both awesome in different ways. Oh, I, can't hey, I will accept a tie any day of the week with Richard. <laughs> the man <laughs> is too kind. By all means, I'll, I'll let you off the hook, Rachel. What Thanks. a great show, though. It really, it really was a great show. And you know, to all of our listeners, thanks again for joining us for another awesome conversation. We just, we just love everyone at CISA. Uh, and, and thank you, John and Richard, again for joining us. And uh, everybody, don't forget, you know, tiptoe over to that subscription button and just boop, 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 and you get this episode right in your email inbox every Tuesday. So until next time, everybody, be safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts.